got some questions. Got it all. You're feeling stressed, man. Got it all. Put on your GPS and got it all. I'm here to turn something that's glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should got it all. Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. This is Chris Sims, and today I'm joined by Katie Tipton and a special guest, Albert Lee. Albert is running for uh, Congress in Oregon's 3rd Congressional District. And Albert was born in South Korea to an African-American soldier father and a Korean mother. The family moved to the suburbs of St. Louis near Ferguson when Albert was five. Because the public school system suffered from the legacy of segregation, his mother worked two jobs to put him and his sister through parochial schools. Her dedication to her work as a cook, both in a nursing home and at a fast food restaurant, demonstrated to Albert the value of hard work. Her commitment to providing a good education for her children gave him the momentum he needed to become a member of the middle class. But the path forward for Albert's family was not without struggles. While Albert was still a teenager, domestic violence left him, his mother, and his sister without a home and living in shelters. The family received help that allowed them to start over, help for which Albert remains grateful. It provided the necessary stability for him and his sister to graduate from high school. This experience is one of many that has inspired him to work toward creating opportunity for others who are battling adversity in their own lives. Albert moved on to become the first in his family to graduate from college. He then served in the U.S. Army, where he was selected for the 3rd U.S. Infantry, known as the Old Guard, and escort to the President, and the oldest continuously serving regiment in the Army. He also worked in international trade and business, giving him a critical understanding of large industry before moving on to law school. His last role before the campaign was as an academic dean at Portland Community College. An Oregonian by choice, Albert has moved to this state twice, choosing to set down roots here with his wife and daughter. He is deeply invested in our community and shows his dedication through both service on government advisory committees and boards and volunteer work with non-governmental community organizations. He is an active member of the Democratic Party of Oregon and the Portland chapter of the Democratic Socialist of America. So uh, Albert Lee is running for Congress in Oregon's third congressional district, which is the most diverse of Oregon's five districts and has the highest population density. Oregon's third district encompasses urban, suburban, and rural communities, ranging from Portland's industrial inner east and north sides to communities on the shoulders of Mount Hood. The incumbent congressional representative is Earl Blumenauer, a Democrat who has served since 1996 when Ron Wyden was elected to Senate. Oregon's third congressional district is ranked as the second most Democratic-leaning district in the country behind Washington's seventh district up in Seattle. So Albert Lee offers a bold alternative to the incrementalist concessionary leadership that has allowed inequality and disenfranchisement to worsen in the area. He also offers a different approach to serving Oregon that is, by any metric, a better representation of the people who live in the district. He's a veteran, a person of color, and his personal experiences have shaped his vision for leadership and advocacy for housing and support advocacy for housing and support for victims of domestic violence. Albert, thank you so much for joining the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much. So when I first learned about your campaign, it was through Portland DSA, where I'm also a member. And, you know, this show isn't at all part of DSA. It's not affiliated with them at all. Um, but that's just where I learned about it. And I, I feel like um, 
you know, DSA it doesn't exist to tell people who to vote for, but it's a, understanding the processes that people have to go through and the scrutiny that um, people's campaigns have to go through to get an endorsement immediately kind of brought my attention to you because you got an endorsement right away and it's been unwavering. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, I looking at your platform, uh, it really resonated with me, uh, but a couple things from your personal experiences that you've shared also resonated with me. Uh, I've come from a military family, and I'm also an Oregonian by choice uh, for the second time around. So uh, that clicked with me too. I was like, "Hey, we, we got a little bit <laughs> the same thing going on." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is a bit of a change of pace from archaeology, but I think it's important to highlight the work that you're doing with your campaign uh, and later on I'd like to tie in uh, your platforms for housing, racial justice, and climate action into the broader regulatory environments that uh, we all work in as archaeologists and historic preservationists. Uh, but first let's talk about your campaign. So you have three uh, main platform points that you've outlined, uh, homelessness, inability to thrive, and the climate emergency. And your approach to homelessness is uh, as a humanitarian crisis, which I think is something that sets you apart from a lot of officials who see homelessness and poverty and drug abuse as kind of the results of like laziness or vice. Um, mm. Do you wanna kind of elaborate on, on your uh, approach to homelessness? Yes, no, thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, when I first moved here in 2005, uh, I moved here as an economic migrant. I moved from the East Coast. I moved from actually Washington, D.C., where I worked uh, in international trade, yet had three or four, sometimes four roommates uh, in a house because I simply couldn't afford to have a place of my own. Uh, moving out to Portland, uh, I, I found I was able to secure a small condo. I was able to live um, a comfortable life. And the first thing that I noticed when I first got here in 2005 was the houselessness crisis, the homelessness crisis. It was a crisis then, and a generation later, it remains a crisis today, super critical crisis. And while too many of our government officials focus on it as a, as a blight, as a something to get rid of, uh, totally dehumanizing uh, the experience, um, I have an experience uh, of homelessness that provides me a perspective that's different from that. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, as you've already noted, I, uh, you know, I, my, my family faced domestic violence. And by the time I was 16, uh, my sister and my mom and I, we had to flee. And I drove us in our little Chevy Cavalier east to an unknown destination and unknown safety. Uh, we ended up in a battered women's shelter. Uh, and because this was before the Violence Against Women Act, uh, we, uh, we went through that process. We ended up going back home uh, only to have to leave again. Uh, then we ended up in Kansas City after bouncing around a couple different shelters around the St. Louis area. Then to Kansas City, shelter to shelter, until a kind family brought us into their home. Um, without that help, without that initial stabilization, quite frankly, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Um, when we talk about our homelessness crisis, too often we leave out the people uh, that are involved. Uh, we look at it as a condition. We look at it as a situation that needs to be resolved uh, instead of really talking about the very humans that are affected. And 
too often, you're right, we, we talk about, well, how did they get into this situation? Certainly, they must have had something to do with this. Certainly, it must be their fault that they're the, in this condition. Why should I have to do anything about it? But we live in a community, we live in a society, and we should be uh, concerned about our fellow neighbor. Uh, that's number one. I mean, if you want to take it on a moral level, we should be concerned about our, our fellow neighbor. But more importantly, when you look at this situation, uh, it not only affects the individual, but it affects our entire community. We need to do everything we can to provide the home housing uh, that people need. Housing is a human right. The United Nations has talked about this for over 40 years. If it is a human right, we should not have people living rough on the streets, period, full stop. Uh, that means that we, as a government, should provide housing without stipulation, without obstacle, without precondition, so that people can get that stability, so that they can then, in turn, start taking care of themselves. Um, you know, I think that a housing-first policy like the ones that is in effect in Salt Lake City, in New Orleans, in Scandinavia, you made that to a universal single-payer Medicare for All system that includes drug dependency treatment that includes mental health treatment, those two things together would help to dramatically mitigate our houselessness uh, situation as it is. But then you add on a living wage because we have, quite frankly, we have too many people that are working full-time jobs that cannot stabilize their housing because the minimum wage is so suppressed uh, that you can't, you can't live on one 40-hour job a week, 40-hour a week job. Uh, so uh, people are, are spending their time living in their cars, working two, three jobs, oftentimes part-time jobs. Uh, and now we're in this COVID crisis where uh, we've, we've got 30 million people uh, that have lost uh, their employment. Uh, so again, we need to look at this for the humanitarian uh, crisis that it is. Uh, we need to have government step in and do its duty to resolve this. And we got to stop spending money and wasting money on like boulders <laughs> to, 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 to move people out of sight because yeah. that's all it's doing is moving people out of sight. It's not necessarily helping anybody. We yeah. wasted millions of dollars through ODOT so that some people weren't bothered by the appearance of houseless folks. And I don't know if that's uh, what's worse, uh, spending, wasting the taxpayers' money or just the, the amoral, the immoral uh, perspective of, of that being a solution. That's exact, I think the point of the uh, moving them out of sight is important because the solution wasn't a humanitarian solution there when ODOT dropped a bunch of big boulders where uh, you know unhoused people were sleeping that was an aesthetic fix. They treated it as like an aesthetic problem rather than- Again, they, they're not looking at humans. They're looking yeah. at uh, a situation. Exactly. I, th I think that ties really well into the second campaign point, uh, or you know, the, the second point in your platform about the inability to thrive. I think that's really deeply woven into, you know, the the staggering difference between uh, the cost of living versus income, um, not just here in Portland and Oregon's third congressional district, but in our country overall, you know, there's, there's a big divide between the cost of living and what people are actually making. Um, what, what do you think about, you know, ways to address that uh, here in 
Oregon's third district. Well, okay. So like I said before, you know, I, I was an economic migrant. I moved here. I had a decent job, a decent paying job, but I yet still could not afford a place of my own on the East Coast. And I drove cross country. Uh, I've actually lived in many different parts of the country, both in urban and rural areas. And when I got to um, Portland, you know, I found this to be a beautiful, lovely place. Now, uh, when I returned in 2015 with my family, once again, we drove cross country. And the difference that we saw um, between 2005 and 2015, 10 year span, uh, was staggering. Uh, the homelessness crisis here had grown exponentially. But it was not just that. It was driving across the country and seeing uh, the various strip malls all shuttered, uh, seeing uh, houseless folks in places like St. Louis and Kansas City and Omaha, Nebraska, places that aren't conducive to being houseless, right? right. Uh, when it's 30 degrees below in Omaha, that's not, that's not a lifestyle choice as some people would like to claim it to be. Um, it is what people are, are having to do. Um, and one of the things that I've talked about already is we need to have a living wage. You know, our minimum wage has been suppressed for 40 plus years. Uh, if you take the minimum wage from the 1970s and just simply tag it to inflation, it would be $33 an hour today. Now, when we talk about what it takes to live in the city of Portland and Portland metropolitan area, you need about $28 an hour to have one full-time job and be able to take care of you and your family. Uh, so that is the difference between what we had in the 70s and what we have now. Um, with that suppression of the minimum wage, we've also had an increase in productivity. Now, if you look at it on a graph, a flat line for uh, the wage and a growing line for the um, productivity, that difference is the profit uh, that is constantly being shifted up to the very top. You know, in 2015, uh, Bernie Sanders was talking about nine people owning as much as the bottom half of Americans. Today, he talks about three. What is it going to be tomorrow? One, this is unsustainable. And on an even grander scale, they talk about 26, the top 26 richest people in the world own as much as the bottom half of the world, the bottom 3.9 billion people. That is simply unsustainable. It is immoral. It is unjust. And we need a wealth redistribution. You know, I, I know that those words for a lot of people sound uh, communist, sound socialist. Well, for one thing, I am a socialist. Uh, I'm running in the Democratic Party and I'm not running away from that. And we talked about it today on Twitter. Um, and here's the thing. We have reached peak capitalism. We have reached peak capitalism. We have overproduction, overconsumption, built-in obsolescence. That is driving our climate emergency. That is driving this immense wealth gap. That is driving the suffering and the struggling that far too many Americans are having. You know, the, the lack of affordable housing, the lack of living wages places way too many of us in a struggling class. And it only takes one car accident, one medical bill, one uh, eviction, and you can find yourself homeless. So, you know, I think that people need to have empathy for these folks, but also we got to realize that those that are in control, the, this oligarchy that we have ruling over us, uh, they're pitting left versus right. They're trying to point fingers at each other. They're trying to make us do this instead of doing this. Because yep. the reality is uh, we should be looking up and not at each other. It's not a left-right thing. It's an up-down thing. And quite frankly, uh, what we have is peak capitalism that has tilted the scales, that has focused on concentrating the wealth to the top, 
to the point that it is completely unsustainable. And if we do not have a political revolution, uh, there will be some other type. Absolutely. Totally agree. And for the lived experience for people working through this, you know, even before the pandemic hit, it's just as you described, you know, people are, are working their lives away, you know, sometimes at multiple jobs for a quality of life that is continuing to shrink. And, you know, we see the, the wealth growing higher and higher, and there's just no political will in the oligarchy that you described. There's no political will to stop that, um, and there's no plan to stop that. And so that's why it's important to have, you know, people reflecting, you know. Uh, there, there, there is no political will because of the money in politics. We have career politicians. Number one, we shouldn't have career politicians, you know. Yeah. I'm challenging a 24-year incumbent. Been in for uh, a generation who's been a career politician for almost 50 years, hasn't held but one job outside of politics. Um, you know, if you don't have the experience of the people, how can you represent the people? That's, yes. that's, that's my first point. A second point is, as a public servant, how do you enrich yourself uh, 20-fold over the course of a 24-year uh, uh, representation of the, of the people in Congress? You know, they get paid fairly well, $174,000 a year. Um, but, uh, you know, to be able to amass millions of dollars from that, I, I just don't, I, I, I must not be that good at math because I can't figure that one out. Um, but, you know, while a 24-fold fold increase in wealth for the incumbent, while the rest of the district has remained flat in net worth, and if you're from the marginalized uh, communities, your net worth has actually decreased. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see how you can say that you're doing a good job for, for the district. Uh, when we have had a crisis, a super critical crisis when it comes to our houselessness uh, situation, community, the people, if you cannot you know, come up with any kind of solutions to that over the course of 24 years, why should you be entitled to a 25th and a 26th year? If people are struggling and suffering and we are getting people priced out of being able to live within uh, this community and they're getting forced out and you're not doing anything about it, I don't see why, again, you are entitled to a 25th and a 26th year. You know, far too many of the folks that we have in Congress feel entitled. It is their right, it is their birthright to be there, to be above us all. And we live in a democracy. We do not live in an oligarchy. We do not live uh, with kings and kingdoms, earls and earldoms. This is a place that's supposed to be of, by, and for the people. And so we need to have not only a political democracy, but we need to have an economic democracy to level the playing field and redistribute the wealth and provide for all of us. Totally agree. And just to create opportunities for, for people working to have a, a better quality of life, you know, things like Medicare for all, um, you know, like, like you said earlier, it's, it just takes like one, uh, economic accident, you know, like one missed paycheck. And, um, I don't know what the statistic is, but it's an alarmingly high number of people, you know, can't weather one missed paycheck before no. they're out on the street. Yeah. I mean, $400 emergency, poof, gone. And yeah. it doesn't matter what level of income you're at. I mean, people are, 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 <clears throat> living hand to mouth. Uh, and it, it is, it is simply by design. 
you know, it is by design that uh, we have a private uh, employer-based health insurance system because we want to control uh, where you go, where you work, and how you work. We don't want you spinning off and doing your own thing. Uh, we don't want you to be creative. We don't want you to actually do things that are going to be uh, increasing your quality of life. We want you to make sure that you're just that uncomfortable enough to stay within the position you're at and won't stand up and peep, uh, uh, pipe up about a raise or anything else so that we can continue to increase our uh, profit margin so that we can continue to extract the wealth from the, uh, from the, from the work that you do, the labor that you do uh, for those at the top. I mean, there's no reason why Jeff Bezos should be almost a trillionaire, the first trillionaire uh, uh, that the world has known. Uh, that is just absolutely immoral. Uh, especially when we've got people uh, literally dying in the streets. Absolutely. It, and I think uh, another part of, you know, my, my backstory is similar to your backstory as well. Um, it was economic pressure that led me to move uh, to Oregon the second time around. Uh, the first time around, my family had moved here. Um, my, my dad came uh, also for economic reasons. He had a, a better job here, but we lived in North Carolina at the time. And uh, so he took a better job uh, while I was still in school back in North Carolina. So I would come out and uh, see him on holidays and just fell in love with Oregon. Like you said earlier, it's, it's beautiful a beautiful place. It's hard not to fall in love. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I moved out here, but uh, when I graduated from college and it was in 2008, and that was not a good time to uh, come out of uh, college with a fresh anthropology degree and I bet, I bet. <laughs> move to a state that had a really, really bad unemployment rate at the time. Uh, so then economic reasons, you know, I, I found a job in Kentucky that was a really good uh, permanent job, salary with benefits. And so I was in a position where I couldn't say no. So I, mm -hmm. I took that and stayed for a long time. And my family moved around a lot more for, for work and stuff. And uh, then again, I found myself eventually in that similar pickle in Kentucky where I was working during the day, digging holes as an archaeologist and then working night as a bartender. And I was exhausted and I was, you know, just making ends meet. And then, you know, finally made my way back to Oregon because I had some better opportunities here. And the cost of living is a lot higher here. You know, that, that can't be ignored. Um, but you know, there's also kind of, at least for my personal experience, you know, I, I had better, you know, financial opportunities here. Mm -hmm. Um, so here we are again, round two. Yeah. <laughs> I only had one, one try. I'm, I'm from, I'm from North of Seattle, so it was a little easier of a jump, but my family also moved across country. My dad's from St. Louis, actually. Oh, okay. So I got really excited when I saw that um, connection. And he came out in the 70s to California for a better job and then moved to the Bay Area. And then we just progressively moved to North for better opportunities in that regard. But yeah. And then I, I jumped back, <laughs> back across the border. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where, where in Washington, up in Bellingham or further south? In between. So Snohomish area. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's pretty area also. It is. It's gorgeous. Also can't afford to live there. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's also that same situation, high cost of living. But well, I mean, when we look at it around the country, uh, it, it is not only just on the coast anymore, but it's in many urban areas throughout uh, the country where 
basically we have developers that continue to build um, uh, for investment properties, right? They're building mm -hmm. studios, they're do, building one bedroom uh, condos uh, so that people can let those out and, and you know, take in that, that rent uh, for doing nothing uh, while the uh, value of the property increases. Um, they're not building for families. They're not building, you know, two, three, four bedroom apartments. Uh, that's what we should be focusing on if we want to really uh, uh, get to an affordable housing situation. Additionally, I think that uh, we really need to start looking again to the models in Scandinavia when it comes to truly mixed income social housing. Um, and so, you know, too many times you think about social housing, you think about the projects. I had family that lived in the projects and, you know, the projects were basically government housing that was separate, that was isolated, that was a uh, concentration of poverty. Uh, and, uh, you know, then they would start pulling the funding away from it and watch it fail, right? That's kind of the whole Republican mantra, right, is to... Uh, pull the funding away, say it fails, and then try to privatize it. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to get to truly mix income social housing so that we can mix the classes up, right? Uh, having um, wealthy people, having middle class people, having poor, poor people all living in the same uh, buildings, paying the same percentage uh, of their income. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll create more cohesive bonds and we'll start having people integrate more. You know, I know that word is a scary word for a lot of people, integration. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we're talking about our public schools and public education and we're talking about social housing, I think we truly need to have integration. Um, you know, when I look at our public school system, you know, we, we have these buzzwords like local control and whatnot. Those are all dog whistles about keeping segregation alive. Uh, when I was growing up um, in St. Louis, my mom worked two jobs. She worked as a cook in a nursing home in the daytime and a fast food joint at night. And she did so in order to put my sister and me in a uh, private school, in the Catholic school, um, because our public schools were truly separate and unequal. Uh, there was a stark difference between the Riverview Gardens school district that I grew up in and, say, the Ladue school district in West County uh, or town and country, wherever else. Um, and, you know, you can take a look even within an individual school district, say, Portland Public School District. And there's a significant difference between the quality of education that's provided for an elementary school, say like Forest Park up in the West Hills, uh, versus an elementary school out toward the east side or far north. Uh, these things have got to change. We have to truly provide uh, a national standard of education that's going to uh, provide um, equal access to opportunity for all. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, the people that start arguing and it's like saying, you know, we, 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 we moved to this place because of the schools are good. <laughs> you know, that's that, that whole concept, uh, that, that, that inward focus, that individualistic focus uh, is only going to shoot yourself in the foot because if we do not provide an access to opportunity for all, you're going to pay for it more on the back end. You're going to pay for it in social services. You're going to pay for it in increased police, uh, the criminal court systems and everything else. Um, and so the social safety net. Um, so again, it's cheaper to invest in the, in the, in the front end than it is to pay for problems on the back end. Absolutely. And it's easy to blame the cities. I think that that's that line of argument um, is a few decades old and mm -hmm. it has, you know, some sources probably predating Reagan, but 
you know, there's this vilification of the cities, you know, that kind of echoes the same kind of vilification of homelessness and poverty and, and drug abuse. But um, I think, you know, what we've seen, at least since the real estate crisis of 2008, is that it's not just a city problem and that, you know, it's this whole holistic problem that's happening in terms of, you know, people moving to an area for, you know, jobs and then having housing issues and, you know, people moving to an area like you described for better schools because they can afford it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's also a form of seeking opportunities, but it just moves the problems further out, you know? And so it's, it's not just a problem in the cities, it's a problem for the whole area. And so Mm -hmm. like Portland's not alone. Every city I think experiences this where, you know, the, the rural exurbs, will kind of point their fingers at the, at the cities and they'll say, you know, oh, that's just a Portland problem or oh, that's just a St. Louis problem. Um, but it's not because it's coming further and further out. And so, you know, you've got these issues of entrenched racism, you know, from our built environment, from, you know, the post-war urban planning. And then, right. you know, our reliance on cars is, you know, also kind of funneling us into all of that. And so it's just interesting how complex these issues are. And it takes someone complex with a and interrelated. Yeah. Right? I mean, you, exactly. you talk about, you talk about the, uh, our, our, our love affair with the individual, uh, uh, private vehicle, right? Um, we need to do everything we can to move from those individual systems into collective systems. So even today we, we talk about Tesla, right? And we talk about all the other, battery electric vehicles that are coming out, Fisker and whoever else is out there. And what people aren't thinking about, they're not taking that step back and saying, we're still working with 20th century solutions here because we're simply just replacing an an internal combustion engine vehicle with a battery electric vehicle. That means we still have the same number of vehicles. We're going to have the same amount of congestion and we're going to be still, uh, you know, doing serious damage to the earth, digging out rare metals and rare earths so that we can build those batteries. Uh, and we're still doing the same thing, just a little cleaner. Um, <laughs> it, what we, what we need to do is we need to start making our public roads truly public, right? Taking 10 or 25% of them, dedicating them to only public, vehicles and emergency vehicles you know initially that would uh, increase the congestion you know if you got four lane highway and 25 percent one lane is dedicated to only uh, public transit that's going to increase uh, congestion by 25 percent until those folks that are in those vehicles start seeing eight or nine buses pass them by while they're waiting in their little 20-foot personal vehicle and say hmm you know, I can sit in traffic for two hours or I can get to where I want to go on this uh, electric bus uh, with 50 of my f- closest friends. Uh, and I think that you can get those kind of incentives uh, to help change behavior. Because you think about it back in the 50s and 60s, none of us wore seatbelts. Well, we, none of us were around, but our, our, <laughs> our ancestors uh, did not wear seatbelts. <laughs> uh, and our ancestors littered free willy-nilly, right? we had to change the behavior. We had to change the idea and the concept. And that's what I'm talking about is we've got to stop thinking uh, in the current situation and start thinking big picture, start thinking outside of the box and try to figure out ways that are going to be innovative, ways that are going to help us become more efficient, 
So aside from public transit and having that a free public transit system, by the way, uh, we need to nationalize our rail system and uh, we need to electrify that rail system and that will create jobs you cannot export. Uh, it will build out ancillary work uh, for a lot of different things from um, the people who service and help uh, the people that are working on those rails. Uh, we need to redo our zoning in the way that we do things. You know, we have a return of people coming from the suburbs into the interior of our cities again, but they're pushing out people through gentrification. Uh, you know, maintaining those old ornate houses and whatnot, uh, which could very well be high in uh, density living, where we can have um, you know three, four bedroom apartments, uh, fourplexes, and the and whatnot, so that we can increase. Uh, uh, the density increased the efficiency. And I know that some people are arguing, well, COVID and everything, but uh, notwithstanding COVID, I think we need to, again, uh, look at making things more efficient. Uh, uh, and then you can move on to other things like agriculture and making sure that we're starting to think more locally, uh, more organic, as opposed to having grapes on demand or strawberries on demand, having, <laughs> you know, grapes flown from New Zealand, flown from New Zealand so that you can have a, a $3 a pound grape uh, that doesn't really taste that good because it's not in season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, all of these things are interrelated and we're looking at system wide changes, but these changes won't happen so long as there's money in politics. And so long as there are career politicians that continue to take that money and look the other way. Um, we need to have that creativity. We have hundreds of progressive champions that are out there that aren't taking corporate contributions, uh, that are trying to do this the right way. We just need the support of the people. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to ask about um, your thoughts on how, you know, our built environment played into inequality. And I feel like you just uh, described that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Uh, but Katie, you had uh, a question about, you know, specifically relating to Oregon legislation. Uh, do you want to get into that? Yeah, sure. It's it kind of goes back to stemming back to regulation and compliance. Um, I'm just gonna sorry pull up again, so I don't know if I'm still seeing. But uh, the state passed House Bill two three two nine. Uh, last year at the state level, and it would exempt certain large-scale renewable energy projects from having to take cultural and environmental resource reviews prior to doing the um, prior to them executing the construction permits. And many of these development projects are occurring on private land, which doesn't always trigger the right environmental reviews. But also, Oregon doesn't have uh, a state-level policy like its mm -hmm. neighbors like California and Washington and although this bill has good intentions to try and expedite and get renewable energy here in the state um, but it eliminates a lot of the projects that need that environmental or cultural review mm -hmm. um, and then also I guess it's kind of mirroring what we're also seeing at a national level with NEPA the National Historic Preservation Act but we're also seeing the stripping of the Clean Water Act, those protection measures, and then removing provisions from the Endangered Species Act. So it's just kind of snowballing, yeah. from, as I'm saying this. And then all these federal laws act as a stage gate to better you know, assess the impacts of these development projects, including renewable energy. So um, although 
renew alternative fuels and renewable energy are the future, the laws that act as a safeguard for reviewing the impacts of these developments are being stripped right in front of us. Um, how, how do you think you'll balance the development of renewable energy and pushing for that while addressing the gutting of our environmental and cultural laws? Yeah, so I mean, you got to start off with, um, you know, I, I go back to law school and I go back to property law. Um, you know, when we were studying property law, it was the only set of law that didn't make sense to me. And uh, the reason why it didn't make sense to me is because it was completely based on um, something that was completely made up, the doctrine of discovery. Um, so basically, uh, uh, it, it is built on a foundation of white supremacy from the very beginning. Um, you know, uh, we own this land because we discovered it and there was nobody else here before that. Well, we know that that's a lie. Uh, so our entire property law is based on the myth that nobody existed in North America prior to the discovery by uh, Europeans. Um, so um, we move on from there and all the other laws are built up on that. Now we've got other laws that have been countered to it. You know, you're, you're, you're talking about historical and cultural preservation laws. Those are great. Um, you know, our private property laws, again, go are traced back down to, to the, this doctrine of discovery. Uh, I think that we've got, you know, competing interests. And that, that's one of the things that are very complex when it comes to a lot of different issues, you know. Uh, on the one hand, yes, we need to make sure that we are taking care of uh, our entire globe by getting off of fossil fuels, by converting to renewable energy, by doing everything we can to uh, make ourselves more efficient and more in tune with nature. But on the other hand, we also have to right the wrongs that have been done to uh, people and cultures uh, for millennia. Um, you know, and I think that uh, you can't look at it as a zero sum game. You've got to look at all the different parts in uh, holistically together. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we need to take a serious look at and put serious uh, discussion into is reparations for black and indigenous people of color. Uh, these two groups above all other groups have suffered the most uh, throughout the entire history of our country and prior to the history of our country. Uh, they deserve uh, reparations uh, for atrocities that continue to leave scars uh, within uh, their cultures and also uh, within their individuals to this very day. Um, uh, with uh, a lack of, uh, of opportunity, with the lack of uh, generational wealth, all of these things. We've got to address that on the one hand. We also have to address, and, I, and I'm not an archaeology expert by by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, when we when we look at archaeology, uh, you know, uh, you're digging up stuff, you're digging up uh, property that belonged to somebody else, and I, you know, I I understand the British Museum has lots of artifacts from around the world. Yeah, how did how they get did them? they get those? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, oh, strange. No. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and we've had different countries sue to get their property returned back to mm -hmm. their, 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 their origin. Uh, those things need to be respected as well. Um, and unfortunately, there, there comes in line times when these things clash and we've got to look at what is in the best interest of all of the folks. And there's a calculus at the, to that. So uh, for anything specific, I, I don't know the specifics when it comes to the Oregon statutes or the, or the, or the laws. But I think that you have to do 
a balance of, of, of all the factors and figure out what is in the best interest of all. Um, and sometimes that's a really tough thing to figure out. Um, I'm not going to lie. I, it, it, there, there are going to be competing interests. Uh, but oftentimes I think that there is a way that you can uh, satisfy um, all of the different competing interests at the same time. Uh, if not, uh, not splitting the baby for, per se, but being able to find creative ways to provide, say, the reparations while at the same time moving forward with uh, the technological needs. Oh, I really appreciate that, hearing that as a, an answer. It's, um, it has been something on my mind. So it's, it's always nice to hear that balance of perspective and that. So. Yeah, it has a lot of material, um, you know, consequences for a lot of people, you know, on, on the reparations end, you know, that can make a, a serious material, tangible impact on, on people's lives in black and indigenous communities. And when you're talking about reparations, it doesn't necessarily mean a monetary reparation. It could be a combination of different things because it is not just the wealth that has been taken, but it's been education. It's been, mm -hmm. uh, you know, property. It's been a lot of different things. So um, when, when you're looking at things like that, you've got to look, again, uh, creatively and in whole uh, to try to make um, those folks whole. Yeah. And the opposite, you know, doing the opposite, continuing to deregulate you know, these regulatory frameworks, um, you know, Katie and I talk about this every week is, you know, is the next wave of deregulation going to mean that we lose our jobs? <laughs> yeah, so, well, here's the thing. I mean, with the, jobs, yeah. we, we've seen this throughout history. Um, we have this push and pull with regulation and deregulation. And what happens every time we uh, deregulate any different industry, shit hits the fan, things fall apart people are people need an eye people need oversight uh 2008 with the financial crisis that was a culmination of ripping apart Glass-Steagall Glass-Steagall was the band-aid was the regulatory band-aid that we put on after the great depression of 1929 when our commercial banks and our investment banks decided to get a little hanky-panky and uh, started doing a lot of speculation and we said hey you know what you guys can't do that we're going to separate you Commercial banks, you're over here. Investment banks, you're over here. You cannot be the same thing, okay? Hey, guess what? You need to hold a certain percentage of money in reserve so that we make sure that, you know, there's not a run on the banks. And then over the course of 50, 60 years, we slowly pick away at that and say, oh, you know, they're, 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 they're hindering uh, progress. They're hindering uh, the economy and blah, blah, blah. And then we go into this high-speed uh, speculation again, and boom, we have a financial crisis again. Uh, after Graham Leach-Biley, um, we have the financial crisis after it basically killed Glass-Steagall. And then we had to go ahead and put in more regulations. And quite frankly, we don't have enough regulations when it comes to banking. But again, uh, regulation is not a bad word. It is simply that we as humans need, we need oversight, right? Uh, we're, not, we're not infallible and, uh, you know, we tend to uh, lean toward our vices. Yeah. Think of it as QAQC for, you know, all the other stuff that gets done. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Albert, uh, today was the last day that people could mail in their ballots. So Tuesday is election day. So if anybody else is out there um, in Oregon's third congressional district and hasn't voted yet, you have to go find a Dropbox and yeah. vote yeah. for Albert. 
Please do. <laughs> and right now, I think we're sitting at about 21, 22% of eligible voters have actually voted. Uh, a little low turnout. And I, I understand part of that might be from the COVID crisis and trying to figure out, you know, if you're unemployed, trying to figure out what you're going to do. Uh, if you're underemployed, same thing. Uh, but I think this is vitally important. Um, we cannot continue to do the same thing and expect a different result. Um, I'm asking for your vote. I'm asking for you to, to, to go ahead and do something different because quite honestly, we've, we've, we've seen what 24 years of the same thing does and it hasn't really helped us out. Uh, we, we need a government that's going to work for all of us and not just those at the top. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Albert, uh, it, for anybody watching the video, uh, there's some links on, on Albert's background there. Uh, but for anybody uh, not watching the video but listening to this podcast, uh, Albert, wh what's the best way for people to uh, reach out and you know, find out more info about you? Thank you. So for, uh, for our main website is albertlee2020.com. You can find out our, our, the majority of our platform is there. If you have questions, you can reach out through hello at albertlee2020. It's also on the website. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn uh, for social media. So pick your poison when it comes to that. Um, and you can find out more information there. Um, like I said, you can reach out. We, I've been answering lots of questions these last couple of days with uh, people asking really specific questions about different policy points as they're making these votes. So Number one, I'm really appreciative of that. I think that it is vitally important uh, that citizens uh, do their due diligence and you know take this seriously and dig into the candidates uh, before you make that decision. Uh, it should not be a popularity contest and it shouldn't be about the incumbent. It should be about who is going to be best represent you. Completely agree. Well, yeah. uh, was there anything else, uh, Albert, that you wanted to cover? You know, uh, there is so many different things, but I mean, the long story short is we've got endless war. We've got a massive wealth disparity. We have the lack of a universal health care system. Uh, we have people that are homeless. We have a climate emergency that has only gotten lift service. And all of these things have one thing in common, and that is the money in politics. Money in politics is the reason why we have all of these different crises. Uh, in order to really address these things, we need to get the same career politicians out. The only way you do that is to start voting folks that don't take the corporate contributions in and we can actually truly make a change. Um, now, of course, you know, I'm coming from DSA, you're coming from DSA. I know there are a lot of people that don't necessarily like to participate in electoral politics, uh, believe that the game is rigged. Um, but I'm asking you to, to step up uh, to vote. And if you don't do that, I ask that you organize and you be a part of the vocal majority, not the silent majority, the vocal majority that's going to affect change on the outside as well. That's a really good point for the folks who, you know, have the reservations about electoral politics. Um, and there are some points to be heard about that, but it, it, when we're talking about, you know, fighting incrementalism with like a real option, this is what we've got right now. Let's take it. You're here. Yeah. yeah. Katie, how about you? For any thing left to say, oh, so many questions. I, I, you know, I'm still, I'm still filling out my ballot. I'm, I'm not going to lie. And so this has been really informational and 
having the opportunity to hear your points and not just read them, but actually have you express and talk about them has been really great. I am going to walk my ballot somewhere <laughs> to my ballot drop-off box um, later this week because I'm all you have to do is put in Multnomah County ballot drop sites or Clackamas yep. County ballot drop sites and there are uh, links to places where you can drop them off yes thank you that was a good plug um, yeah. and I because I know the, the local library as well has a lot of drop points but other than that no I really appreciate you taking the time to, no, yeah. to sit thank here and, and do this yeah yeah, thank you so much, Albert, and good luck with the run. Thank yeah. you. All right. <laughs> so thanks again for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Uh, you can find Albert Lee online at albertlee2020.com. And if you dig what we're doing here on the Go Dig a Hole podcast, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Every contribution makes a huge difference, and we're constantly coming up with new projects that, um, you know, every little bit of funding, every little bit of support, even if you're not able to contribute right now, you know, uh, just being able to share it and spread the word uh, helps us out a ton. So um, you all are awesome. Really appreciate you listening, sharing the word and contributing, and uh, stay safe out there. We'll bring some more new shows out to you soon.